0: Good morning. If you would turn in your Bibles this morning with, with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. It's good to be back with you folks this morning. I've got a, a lot of acquaintances here, some old friends, not elderly necessarily, although some of you are getting up there, but some longtime acquaintances, and it's good to uh, connect, reconnect with, with many of you. book of Titus has a special place in My ministry experience, as many of you know, I teach at a seminary, I'm not a pastor, and uh, so I'm often filling pulpits like I am this morning, sometimes for longer times, usually between pastors and uh, trying to walk a church uh, through the process of appointing a new pastor. And uh, this book of Titus seems as much as any book in the Bible, one that's sort of directed to that kind of a situation. The book of, the book of Titus was written by the apostle Paul, who had gathered a band of Christians together in the island of Crete. In the most unlikely of circumstances, he was being transported as a Roman prisoner uh, from Judea to Rome when his ship w- went down off of the coast of Crete. And being nearly winter, the survivors of the shipwreck, which was all of them incidentally, Uh, found themselves stranded on this island and forced to winter there uh, until better sailing conditions returned in the spring. And, of course, Paul, being the relentless evangelist that he was, shares the gospel with the local Cretans that he comes in contact with during this time, and many of them apparently found Christ. But spring did come quickly, and Paul was unable to organize these new believers into organized churches. And so he appointed his protege, Titus, to complete the work of church planting that he was unable to complete. So he wants him specifically to appoint elders in every city where there was uh, a a body of believers. And so this letter uh, begins with qualifications, rather a compact section here on the qualifications for eldership, and a very good supplement here to the longer uh, passage in 1st Timothy chapter 3. Um, And in the verses that follow here in chapter 1, he gives some reasons why these very, very lofty credentials are necessary uh, for someone who aspires uh, to the office of elder. And specifically, he says here in chapter 1 verse 11 that there were those in Crete who had already infiltrated this small band of believers and were disrupting whole households, verse 11 says. And so, chapter one. Uh, so, chapter two begins by offering some guidance in what is sometimes called uh, one of Paul's household codes. So, what Paul does is, in the face of households that are being disrupted, gives specific instruction to old men, young men, old women, young women, and then also slaves as well. Part of the uh, first-century household in the Roman context there. And the instructions that Paul gives are simple and yet extraordinarily difficult. They're completely out of step with societal norms and expectations. And as time has passed, they seem even more out of step than they were even in that day. Paul tells young men to be dignified, to be steady, to be serious, to accelerate their maturity in an era where maturity seems to be be slow in developing. Women are told to mind their tongues, to be more concerned with tending their homes rather than their social uh, structures and their careers. Most startling of all, perhaps, is what Paul says to slaves. He tells them, In a day where social injustice was rife, he tells them, be really good slaves. Don't try to tip the scales of social justice by stealing from their oppressors. Don't pilfer. Don't steal from your owners. Despite the fact that they were dirt poor, scarcely had enough uh, to, to make ends meet. Paul says, don't steal. Be as good a slave as you can possibly be mirrors what Paul says elsewhere in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he says, if, if you happen to be a slave when you embraced Christ, don't, don't let it bother you, because you can be an excellent Christian and a witness-bearer for Jesus Christ as a slave. So don't worry about your miserable lot. Live for Christ where you are. Here, as in 1 Timothy, the goal is to live peaceful and quiet lives so that we can live out our faith in godliness and holiness and thus have multiplied opportunities for the gospel. And that's Paul's goal here. By living this way, he says in verse 10, you can make the teaching of God attractive. And so to summarize what Paul has said up till this point, he tells us that if we successfully cultivate these Christian disciplines, which are out of step with the spirit of the age, then we will stabilize our families, first of all, in fact, all of our social structures, and create multiplied opportunities for the Christian gospel. What could be simpler? And yet, as we look around us in our society, even in our church, we find it painfully obvious that many do not succeed in doing all of these things that Paul has detailed here in verses 1 to 10. And we're tempted to say, with the rest of the world, I can't possibly bring myself to do these kinds of things that Paul tells us we ought to do. Or even worse, I I, I really don't think those kinds of things could possibly work today. And perhaps you're even now saying, Paul's ideas are all rather quaint, but they're out of touch. Nobody can do those kinds of things today, and even if they did, it would never produce the results that Paul says they will. The contemporary situation, Paul doesn't, just doesn't get it. It's too complex, too progressive to respond favorably to solutions like these. And it's almost as though as we move into verse 11, which is uh, the beginning of our text for this morning, Paul sees his audience perhaps peeling away in skepticism, and he starts here, come back, he says, Give me one last chance to convince you. Give me one last reason why this can happen in your life, why your relationship with your spouse can improve, why your family can become more stable, why you can generate opportunities for the Christian gospel with your habits, actions, reactions. These kinds of things can happen, Paul says here in verses 11 to 15. And in fact, it must happen. Let me tell you why. So let's read these verses, verses 11 through 15. Because for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for that blessed hope, the appearing of the glory, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people that are His very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things that you should teach, uh, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. We're accustomed, in the writings of Paul, to see him spend the first half of his letters giving a theological lecture, and then in the second half, some of the practical implications of the more abstract theological truths that he gives in the beginning of the book. Well, in this book, he sort of reverses that, right? He He tells us exactly how we're supposed to conduct ourselves within our families, and then he gives the theological rationale for it. And he offers reasons for everyone to revisit those instructions in verses 1 to 10 so that we, like Naaman in the Old Testament, remember him, say, even though I don't see how this can possibly work, I don't get it, even though it seems like it's downright ridiculous to do some of these things, God said, I should do it, and so I will. And just as he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan River and came up whole, So also, I think we can do the same this morning with this text that Paul has given to us. The first very simple reason that Paul says that you can do these things is because, he says, the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. You can and you must make the kinds of changes detailed in this book You can make these changes in your life because the grace of God and the saving power that changes can change anyone it touches without exception. And you have become a recipient of the saving grace of God, Paul tells us. And you're not the same morally bankrupt, failure-prone person that you were before you were saved. You can do all of these things, Paul tells us, because you're a new creature in Christ. You can change because God's grace has come. Now before we move into some of the implications of these verses, I, we need to address at length a theological question that has popped up because of the wording of this verse. What exactly does Paul mean when he says the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for and angels who are going to be cast into the lake of fire. Now grammatically it could say that, but theologically we know that can't be the case. So realizing this can't be the case, other translators, such as the translation in front of us before uh, today, have added an explanatory word to the translation to make better sense of the verse. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation or offering salvation for all people. Now these words, bringing or offering, uh, do not appear in the original text, but adding them makes better sense of the verse. But in some sense, it doesn't, because even this adjusted language doesn't seem at face value to be true. Many unbelievers, sadly, have never heard a clear offer of the gospel. But secondly, and I think perhaps the more clinching argument, the availability of the gospel is of really no value. Okay, so let's pick up where we were here. So does it make sense then to look at this uh, this verse as saying the, the, uh, the grace of God has appeared offering salvation to all people? And the fact is, not all people have heard the free offer of the gospel. And in fact... In in the flow of the argument, it doesn't help. What does the offer of the gospel do to make us capable or empower us to do these things in verses 1 to 10 that we are supposed to do in, in carrying out the expectations of sanctification? So as much as we might want this verse to say something about the extent of the atonement or the free offer of the gospel, this verse probably doesn't actually say anything about that. Another, a third popular idea among those of us who are committed to the sovereignty of God is that Paul is announcing that the graces of of God has appeared, saving all kinds of people. Now, this is within the semantic range of the word all. It makes some good contextual sense. Paul has just listed five kinds of people, right? Old men, young men, old women, young women, slaves— And God saves people in every one of those categories. But the point that Paul is making is not that all kinds of people need to be evangelized, but rather that the church is already populated with people like this. Which brings us to a fourth understanding of this sentence that I think makes even better sense. The grace of God has appeared thoroughly saving those within its reach. So it's not so much it saves all people distributively, but rather it, slits, it saves all of you as individuals. It saves you thoroughly. So when the grace of God comes, it saves all of you, if I can put it that way. It saves people all the way. And that seems to be what Paul is saying here. How is it possible for us to live out this impossible list of instructions in verses 1 to 10. Those verses that seem so lofty, so out of reach, so contrary to what we hear taught us in our society. They seem most ridiculous. But Paul says, not for you. It's not ridiculously. It's not, it's not out of reach. It's not impossible for you. Because the grace of God has found you. The grace of God has rescued you. The grace of God is fixing you. And no matter who you were, no matter how hopelessly damaged your life was, and perhaps still is, in your previous life without Christ, no matter how deep the hole you have dug since you found Christ, the gospel has changed you. It has made you capable of living the life that God expects, as Hebrews 7.25, it saves us to the uttermost, who come to God by faith. And this is where this passage fits in with the series that's ongoing here. There's a double benefit of union with Christ. We sang quite a bit about the first part of that union. The debt is paid. The, the liberation has taken place. The, the, there's no more fear of death that is ongoing. And so we have that, that first benefit, the justifying work of God. But sometimes the, the, the part that gets overlooked, which has been the emphasis of the last couple of weeks, right, is the fact that God has regenerated us. He has sanctified us. He has changed who we are and is in the process of changing who we are. Perhaps some of you might look at me this morning and say, you just don't get it, Mark. My spiritual life's in shambles. My family? It's a wreck. My Christian testimony at work? Let's face it, I just don't have one. These ideals painted in verses 1 to 10 are so far out there that they're a dream. That's not an achievable goal for me. And what Paul would say right back to you is this. No, you don't get it. You don't get it. You have not yet fathomed the extent of God's grace, the power of the gospel. You haven't yet received and and understood what that power involves. You have not yet caught the life of God in the soul of men. And if you say, God can't help me, You either believe God to be a liar, or you're not regenerate. Those are the two options, right? You don't believe what God said, or God hasn't changed you. It's true, of course, that the enabling grace of God does not render us immediately perfect. We all know that. That would be a great thing, we might think, but that's not how God has designed it. Instead, God seeks seeks to perfect us gradually. It teaches us. We actually had that in the morning, in the morning's reading as well, from Ephesians chapter 4. It teaches us. It, it puts us into a training regimen that allows us to advance in holiness, and it in, invites involvement from us, equips us to participate in our own growth in holiness. Here in verse 12, it tells us to say no! Okay? Some of you have a uh, I watched The Fiddler on the Roof, right? It's, a, it's a stage presentations, became a movie here a few years ago. <clears throat> but of course the story is of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a man living in Russia, he's a Jew, and his three daughters are getting married off, and he's a conflicted soul because of it. You know, the first daughter marries a, a man who is a bit poor, he's not perhaps a very manly man, And so the the dad is a little bit anxious about it, and he has a sort of a back and forth with himself. On the one hand, he's got this going for him. On the other hand, he doesn't... But at the end, he says yes, gives his consent. Second daughter goes a little step further. Uh, The second daughter marries a progressive Jew, one who doesn't hold to the traditions, okay, And again, he has this argument with himself. Again, he's not particularly pleased with this, even less pleased than he was previously with the first daughter. But ultimately, he gives in to himself and gives consent. But then the third daughter comes along, and she wants to marry outside the faith. And again, you you see him start to have this back and forth with himself. But about halfway through, on the one hand, on the other hand, and then what's the next line? No! there is no other hand. I think that's, that's the sentiment that Paul has right here. No, that's not who I am. That's not who we are as believers. I can't do these things any longer, these wicked things that I used to do. There is no other hand. I can't do them. That's not who I am. And this theme is uniformly heralded throughout the New Testament. I believe you had a passage here Uh, preached uh, last week from Romans chapter 6. Just a reminder of that. All of us have been baptized and raised to walk in newness of life. We died to sin and our old self was crucified. Therefore, for these reasons, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body to obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself as sin to sin as instruments of wickedness but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness because sin can no longer be your master because you're not under the law you're under grace So, so, so there's the sentiment you're new you've been baptized you're walking in newness of life you died to sin your old man was crucified therefore you have been empowered and enabled to pursue a life of holiness. passage we just read this morning. That was something I wasn't expecting, but uh, there it was. Ephesians 4 says exactly the same thing, right? You have been renewed in the spirit of your mind. You have laid aside the old self and have put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Therefore, for this reason, you must... Put off falsehood. Speak truth to your neighbor, because we're members of one body. In your anger, don't sin. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must find work, doing something useful with their hands so that they may have something to share with those who have need. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building up others according to their need that it may benefit those who listen. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you have been sealed to the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate one to another, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Why can you do those things? Because you have laid aside the old self and have put on the new. You have become regenerate. The Spirit of God dwells in you. And for that reason, you are empowered and you are enabled to please God. That's the second benefit of our union with Christ. We have been liberated from the penalty and we have been endued with power so as to carry out the expectations of God. Same thing in Colossians 3. Same, same, same metaphor. You, the old self has been laid aside, and you've put on the new self. Therefore, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature: sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, greed, idolatry. You used to walk in these ways, the whole life you once lived. But now you must, and I might add, you can put them all away: anger, wrath, malice slander filthy language from your lips don't lie to one another why because you put off the old man and have put on the new one we can see this theme elsewhere second peter has it. titus right here uh does the same thing the discussion is perhaps not quite as long as some of these others but the message is the same you're not perfect not by a long shot but neither are you what you once were You are not that totally depraved person who was once so repulsive and ugly in the eyes of God. In the famous words of one stalwart of the faith, I am not what I ought to be, I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. Still, by the grace of God, I am not what I once used to be. So while the lingering remnants of sin still grope for our souls like so many hands in a zombie movie, Paul reminds us that we've been equipped by God to shrug off those clinging hands, to break their grip, to fight off their relentless temptation. And God has placed you into a training regimen, right? It teaches us. It equips us to do this better and more successfully day by day, week by week, month by month year by year as you press towards that goal of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So we have not only justifying grace, but regenerating, enabling, sanctifying grace that empowers, that emboldens us to throw every bit of energy into this effort to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, Paul says, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Why? because the grace of God in all of its fullness has appeared. But just as every training regimen has moments of discouragement and despair, Paul realizes that this is not going to be all roses and butterflies either, right? That's not what the Christian life looks like. We have seasons of frustration. We obsess about the failures of the old life, about the painfully slow progress of the present life in Christ. And we go through this present age that Paul speaks of, and we say, boy, this is a a, a hard crucible in which to develop these qualities. And so we find ourselves prone to bouts of spiritual despair, even depression and despondency, as we realize that our Sanctification is going so slowly. What hope do we have when God's grace just doesn't seem to be enough? What hope do we have when we connect so well with that wretched man in Romans chapter 7 who's just constantly having this battle inside of himself, good and evil in conflict. And so often the evil prevails. Well, Paul actually gives us a second reason. It's actually a manifestation of grace, but it is a second reason within the flow of his argument here. What is it? Well, verse 13 tells us. We look not only backward at the grace that comes to us in the death of Christ, this grace that has appeared, but we also look forward to a grace that is going to appear, right? The glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is the second grand and bracing reason for aspiring to this lofty, seemingly impossible standards that Paul has given us in verses 1 to 10. God's grace has appeared and his glory is going to appear. Paul admits that our previous life was an appalling wreck. And even that the grace of God takes root in painfully slow steps in the, as the believer grows towards Christ's likeness. But he makes very certain that the end of this process is the same for us all. The end of grace is glory. Why should I live like a Titus II woman? Why should I live like a Titus II man? Why should I live like a Titus II slave? Because the glory is coming. We often lose sight in our work world that this blessed hope lies ahead of us. Paul reminds us so very often, but it, it bears repeating, right? We need these, these reminders, and that's why he re- reminds us so often. What greater motivation can a Christian possibly have as we see a world slipping even deeper into the maw of depravity? Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back in spectacular fashion. In power and glory, he's going to vindicate the Christian worldview. He's going to validate our efforts, our maligned, persecuted, and feeble attempts to please him. Brothers, sisters, do not lose sight of the fact that there is no grander prospect upon which we may fix our mind's eye. The glory is coming. Now, please don't hear me diminishing what Christ has already accomplished for us in his death and resurrection. We can't emphasize that enough. The grace has appeared. Uh, Without a doubt, the work of Christ on the cross and his historical triumph over the grave and over the powers of sin should be objects of our regular reflection. It's the ground of our motivation, the fountain of proper affections. But this is not the totality of the work of Christ. Remember that. The grand climax of the work of Christ is when he comes and completes the grace of God and brings us to this place that we sometimes call glorification, right? When he comes back and transforms us into his image. In fact, without this promise of glory, the initial appearance of grace would ultimately prove incomplete and unsatisfying, right? But there is coming a day, as we sang again this morning, when we shall stand in him complete. Normally, the scriptures uh, uh, treat the Christian's blessed hope as the return of Christ, and I think that's exactly what we have in view here. But the wording that Paul uses is somewhat interesting here in Titus 2. He He accentuates here the fact that the arriving thing is not so much Christ, but the glory of God in Christ. I think emphasis is here on the fact that we are one day going to be glorified. Of course, it comes in conjunction with the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so we can't lose sight of that. But I think the emphasis that Paul is sort of pushing us toward is this recognition that there will be something in this that accrues to us. We will receive glorification. So the emphasis is not on what we are now becoming, but rather what we shall be hereafter. And this is another impetus to holy living that Paul is stressing here. This is why Paul says in verse 14 that Jesus saved us. I think sometimes we envision Christ trying to woo recalcitrant fish into the boat by any means possible, and then celebrating a good day of fishing. But this is really an incomplete picture of what evangelism is, right? God is sovereignly selecting people, rendering them eager to follow him, and then forging them into a people for his name's sake. That's the goal, Paul says, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. This is the goal. In the familiar words of Ephesians, Christ has loved the church and given himself for her not to land a pile of ragamuffin, unsanctified rabble, but that he might sanctify her, cleanse her by the renewing of the washing of water and the renewing of the word that he might present to himself. A church in all of its splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and without blemish. We are in effect preparing ourselves for this wedding day to become this bride of Jesus Christ. And just like a wife wants to make herself as perfect as possible on that day, so should we. How strange it would be if a woman on her long-awaited wedding day would wander into the church a bit late dressed in a soiled t-shirt, old jeans, and flip-flops. The picture is disturbing, a little bit sad. And we might wonder whether the groom should reconsider at this moment. But here's the thing. We're prepping for a day far more significant than our earthly wedding day. We're preparing for eternity with Jesus Christ, our Lord, equipped with the knowledge that it is his great desire To purify for himself a people. What kind of people? A kind of people that have cultivated the lifelong habit of scouring our redeemed souls and removing every vestige of lawlessness, cultivating a resilient zeal for good works. So be that kind of a person, because the glory is coming. Of course, again, we know that when Christ comes, he is not going to find a perfected people, And so on that day, we shall be wholly transformed into his image. And perhaps with our minds still warped by depravity, we might look at that fact and say, well, if we can't completely fix ourselves, why bother? But there really could be no more gross miscarriage of Christian theology, nor more selfish a response than that. We must persevere, Paul says, because it is the eager hope of God himself as he anticipates the climax of history. We must give ourselves over to the pursuit of holiness because nothing pleases God more than this. We all sit here today with the oppressive realization that the depravity we knew before conversion took us very far from where God expects us. To be. We all sit here with the realization that our sanctification is painfully slow, pockmarked by many, many scars, besetting sins with which we struggle monumentally but often can't overcome. We all sit here with the despair of reading Titus 2 and falling way, way short of God's expectations for men and women in His image. But don't give up, Paul says. The grace of God has appeared, and the glory of God is coming. So get up again, dust yourself off, and pound that wall one more time. Mentioned earlier in this message, a stalwart of the faith, who made a mnemonic statement here. About He says here, I am not what I once was. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. And I, and I am not what I will be in another world, still by the grace I am not what I once used to be. Some of you know who said that. It's John Newton. Many of you know his story, right? Here's a man who probably landed further away from the grace of God than any of us have, right? He was a slave driver, a, 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 a slave ship operator, a captain. Under his watch, probably hundreds of men, predominantly, and women, most of them black from Africa, died under his watch. What a, what a weight to carry around that you're responsible for that. And yet you know of the fact that the grace of God reached him, and it reached him thoroughly. And he was able to make this statement Near the end of his life, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be and will be in another world. Still, by the grace of God, I am not what I used to be. And I think this is the kind of statement that all of us as believers ought to be able to make the end of our lives, our Christian lives. Newton, of course, is famous for plumbing the depths of the grace of God His most famous song, Amazing Grace, gives us a testament to that grace. But he speaks of the whole grace of God, right? He speaks of the grace that appeared in justification. Amazing grace, how sweet that sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Grace taught my heart to fear. Grace, my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, snares, I have already come. Grace has brought me safe thus far. Grace will lead me home. But he also plumbed the depths of the coming glory of God as well, making it the subject of the last three verses of his song, some of which are not as well known. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. And when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. The earth will soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. And as we close this morning, With an appeal yet again to the disciplines of a godly life. Disciplines that seem so impossibly idealistic, so impossibly out of reach. A topic that perhaps elicits more hopelessness than resolve. In those of you who are sitting here today, let me conclude with Paul's motivation with hope that it will again stir your despondent hearts and souls to action. The grace of God appeared, thoroughly saving you and the glory of God shall soon appear so get up again dust yourself off and by God's grace take one more step towards that grand goal of Christian perfection that will be ours in the last day when the glory of God appears may God help us all to that end Lord we are grateful today for your grace to us for the bracing strength that it gives to us, in addition to the promise of a home and the, uh, and the, and the, and the, the absence of fear of death. Lord, I ask that we would also uh, see in our lives the grand expressions of the grace of God in the conduct that is, that is produced by a heart wholly committed to you. And Lord, I ask that we might renew uh, our resolve. To live lives that are pleasing to you that you might be pleased in this world and in the next in your name amen